I've been a sports writer for going on 20 years. I've been a reporter for about 25 years. And I don't think I would do what I do. I don't think I would write about sports if it didn't help me sort of order the world, understand life a little better, understand myself, gain some insight. And hopefully, hopefully, here's the big hope, that the people that read my stuff, that it helps them gain some insight and help them get through the day and have some revelations about, you know, what it means to be human. All right, welcome back or welcome to the Finding Mastery podcast. And I'm Michael Gervais by trade and training. I'm a sport and performance psychologist as well as the co-founder of Compete to Create. Now, the whole idea behind these conversations is to learn from people who are on the path of mastery, who have a deep and a rich understanding and insight about how they work, how their craft works, how the world around them works, how they organize their inner life to be able to flourish and meet the demands and challenges of their external world. And so we also want to dig to understand the mental skills that they use to build and refine their craft. Finding Mastery is brought to you by Bubs Naturals. Like you, I am mindful about what I put into my body. So for me, it usually comes down to ingredients and simplicity. The shorter the list, the better. And that's why I've been loving Bubs Naturals. Bubs creates products with high quality, all natural ingredients that are designed to help us get after the adventures in life. For years, I've been a huge fan of their hydrate or dye electrolyte mix. I mean, that's a fun title for a product, isn't it? It only has six total ingredients. It's packed with electrolytes. I love the taste. No added sugar, no artificial flavors, none of that stuff. It's great for post-workout recovery. That's when I use it. And I also use it during long periods of travel, which I've been doing a lot lately. And so thank you for the hydration here. And a ton of athletes that I know swear by them too. They're currently in just about every MLB locker room. They work closely with the Red Sox, the Yankees, I know the Rangers, Cardinals, Diamondbacks, and, and many more, of course. I'd love for you to go check them out. I think they're doing a really nice job. Just head to bubsnaturals.com slash findingmastery and enter the code findingmastery at checkout for 20% off your first purchase. Again, that's bubsnaturals, B-U-B-S naturals, dot com slash finding mastery with a code finding mastery for 20% off your first purchase. Finding mastery is brought to you by hymns. Hymns is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science informed treatments for erectile dysfunction, ED, hair loss, weight loss, and more health struggles like ED are common, but they can be hard to talk about when it comes to finding a solution. That's why Hims has been a game changer for so many men. The entire process is 100% online, and if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms, no pharmacy visits. Plus, you can manage your plan directly on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. So, if you or a loved one has been struggling with ED, I really want to encourage you to go check out HIMSS. And I know ED often has a psychological component as well. So be sure that you're stacking some psychological best practices into your daily routine as well. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com 
slash finding mastery. That's hims, H-I-M-S dot com slash finding mastery for your personalized treatment options. Hims.com slash finding mastery. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash EOF for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Okay, this week's conversation is with Matthew Futterman, the deputy sports editor of The New York Times. And he's previously worked for The Wall Street Journal, The Philadelphia Inquirer, The Star Ledger of New Jersey, where he was part of the team that won the Pulitzer Prize for breaking news in 2005. Matthew grew up in New York and eventually found his way to Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. So he studied it. He cares about writing. He's got some serious chops behind him. And one of his deep passions in life is running. And he does it a lot for long distances. And he's fast too. And so this conversation, though, it's not about running. We do talk about it. But it's about how he uses his inner life to help others do the same, whether that's through his journalism at the New York Times or through his new book, Running to the Edge. At its core, the book is way more about insights and strategies toward improvement as a human than it is about running tactics. And I've had the privilege of being interviewed by Matt when he was at the Wall Street Journal. And since then, I've followed his work. He's one of the rare three folks who have been able to really get to the essence and capture the spirit of what I wanted to communicate in the interview. And that's really about how people can flourish and the thoughts around that. So for that, I've just enjoyed his writings from that time. And I hope that you'll do the same. And maybe it starts with buying his book. So with that, let's jump right into this conversation with Matthew Futterman. Matt, how are you? I'm great. Doing very well today. Five and a half hours on a plane, but uh, sitting in Hermosa Beach doesn't get much better than that. It's, it's, it's a little overcast, which is rare, but it is a beautiful place in the world, isn't it? It's phenomenal. Yeah. This is like one of my favorite areas in the world. This sort of, I mean, I'm a New Yorker, um, and but I absolutely love California. Uh, I have a daughter who goes to school in Northern California, another one who's going to join her in a couple months in Northern California. So um, we're out here a fair amount. But uh, this area, particularly like just south of L.A., is uh, special. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Larchmont, New York, uh, which is a little suburb just north of uh, New York City, northeast. Okay, so describe what that was like, like growing up. What is it like growing up? For you? Uh, so growing up for me in Larchmont, New York, um, if you've read John Cheever, those, those short stories, uh, which many of them take place in Rye, I think some of them take place in Larchmont, but sort of classic suburban New York. Um, you know, I guess back in the day, the the word, I don't know if it's a politically correct word to use anymore, it was kind of a waspy sailing town. Um, but, uh, you know, and it has, you know, it's much more mixed, much more mixed now than it, than it was back in the 1950s. But, um, this is sort of the, this is sort of the classic, uh, you know, Larchmont Yacht Club is a big place. It's, um, it's kind of the, an ideal, idealized childhood, uh, in a lot of ways. So that's the neighborhood. And then when you zoom into what it was like for you, 
what was it like inside your home, inside of your family? So I'm one of three uh, brothers. I'm the youngest of the three brothers. I, I have to say, growing up, I was kind of the black sheep. Um, my older brothers, uh, school came easier to them. Let's just say that. And, um, you know, they they were probably athletically, I think they were better than me. I guess it, whether or not I was the black sheep, I kind of see myself that way. And so that's really sort of, uh, you know, after all these years, that's what it was like. And, um, you know, but pretty loving, pretty supportive household. Father's a lawyer, mother's a psychoanalyst. And, uh, you know, I mean, people could, you, you could, you could write a, you could write a funny cartoon about us. I say that. Attorney and psychoanalyst. Okay. And you got a chip on your shoulder. Like you're the black sheep. Does that mean you got something to prove? Um, or does that, was that more something else like, like this, man, I don't fit in. I don't know that I would say I, would say I had something to prove other than, you know, I, I mean, I guess, I guess I, yeah, I mean, I just, you want to, you're the youngest kid. You want to measure up. Um, you want to do well. And it's hard when, you know, you're not quite that, you're not as fast as they are. Or, this is actually you know, a big deal that we're talking about. This is a really big deal because as you would recognize that kids that have a hard time in sport, boys that have a hard time in sport at a young age, if they're in the bottom third, according to some interesting research, that it's hard for them. And so that is an indicator for struggle in sport. I'm sorry, struggle in um, school. So for boys that are in bottom third of performance in sport, it's a tough place to be in America. Yeah, I mean, and I was fine. Okay. I just like wasn't like excelling. Um, and my middle brother, Danny, uh, really good soccer player. Uh, I mean, as good in good in like in 1980s suburban good. You know, not great foot skills or anything, but like was you know varsity soccer team in the midfield, and um, you know. I got cut. You know, I, I got cut from varsity my junior year. That's really why I became a pretty serious runner. I joined the cross country team, so uh, that was my sort of introduction to one of the things that has become the kind of mainstay of my life. And my oldest brother David is, you know, and Danny as well. They're just super smart and just straight A students, seemingly without much effort. I don't think anyone, if they read your work would ever say, oh, poor guy struggles. <laughs> so how do I know you're not just being humble right now? And this is just a mark of humility as opposed to, no, Mike, that this is really how it happened. I wasn't very fast. I didn't have great footwork. I wasn't so athletically minded. I was okay. And and I look around my family like super high achievers and I, I don't feel like I fit in. I mean, it takes, it, it takes a lot of work. I think people don't realize when they read stuff, whether it's magazine articles or books, just how much work goes into that. How much of writing is rewriting? How much of it is draft after draft? Uh, you just you just can't get it right on the first try. I'm just, I mean, some people might. I'm not that good. I, I just don't. And so I rewrite a lot. Uh, and it's just something you have to recognize as part of as part of the craft. Okay. So if I'm writing and I don't really care about the quality and I just want to get my ideas down, I'm not going to rewrite. Now you and I, we really care about the quality of the expression of words and ideas. 
So let's assume somebody does care and that caring is going to lead to a desire to get it right. And that's a matching of what we think we understand internally with the external words on paper and the way that maybe somebody else will feel or think when they read it. So that's, that, that's my process of communication. And it, for me, it's really hard to match what's inside with the way I communicate. And as I practice, it gets better. And as I um, rewrite or re-say, it gets easier as well. But I want to ask you the deeper question. Like, I'm assuming you care because of the way that you write and the phrase you just said. What do you care about? Like, what is the deep drive underneath of why you care so much to do the painful work of rewriting? Well, the first thing I really care about most is is I'm terrified of boring a reader. Oh, so, just, so it's a fear of what not people think of you, but fear of something else. Of just, of, of just the thing I write being boring. Honestly, that's, that's sort of the main thing. Like, is this fast enough? Does this get to the heart of the story? There are so many options out there for how people spend their time and getting someone to sit with you and to get through your thousand word story or your hundred thousand word book is a really big ask these days. And so you got to grab the readers and you got to keep the story moving and you got to keep it interesting and you can't gum it up with a lot of flab. And so I, so a lot of writing to me was, it has been sort of getting to know what kind of writer I am and what I do well and what I don't do well. And, you know, people, it's really nice when people tell me, oh, you're a terrific writer. I do not think of myself as a terrific writer. See, there, I think of that humility. Again, no, right? I, it's it's not humility. It's there are certain things I think I do really well. I think I'm a really good reporter. Uh, oh, so you, so you see this differently? Reporting, reporting and well, good. I mean, generally good writing in, in the nonfiction realm. Generally, good writing is good reporting. If the reporting isn't there, it's going to show in the writing, which is going to be sort of flabby, and people are going to be. You can tell when people are trying to sort of like bullshit their way through a story and they just don't have the goods so so I, i'm a i'm a really good reporter but you know i could rattle off the names i mean the first two people that come to mind you know one of them i work with john branch he's just a great stylist he can turn a phrase in his sleep another one i used to work with ben cohen yeah i, I mean just great hilarious terrific sentences just seemed to sort of fly out of his fingers. Jason Gay is another one. Uh, these are sports, you know, sports writers that I've worked closely with for years, and um, you know, they have things that I don't, and that's cool. That's great. I probably have a few things that they don't, and we talk about that, and I help them with their stories, and they help me with mine, and um, you know, it's it, it it's a it's kind of a collaborative art, even though it doesn't seem that way. Really cool. And what are the skills that you're good at? What are the things that if they can turn a phrase, that's a cool, I've never heard that before. Like I, I really like that, I, that imagery that they can turn a phrase, meaning that they can create something that is eloquent. Definitely. Well, they can also, it's almost like they're really good at, the metaphor or the simile at the end of the sentence, 
uh, which, you know, if I'm going to describe something that happens, I'm going to sit here with you and I'm going to ask you to tell me every last detail and I'm going to I'm going to write down all those details and then I'm going to recreate it and just put it down there and put it down sort of raw. It is what it is. And that's going to have to carry the day. They can do that. And then at the end of it, they can say sort of like a, and they can complete it and sort of complete that sentence in a really beautiful way uh, that brings up an, an image, you know, the, the, the Hemingway line, hills like white elephants. You know, I'm never gonna I'm never gonna come up with hills like white elephants. That's not who I am. But I can talk to people for a while. I can get them to to tell me over uh, a series of hours and conversations, because there are a lot of hours and a lot of conversations that go into it, uh, to, to sort of recreate things, and then I can take really good notes and I think I can turn that into a pretty good narrative if the narrative is there. And that's sort of, that's what writing has come to be for me. And other people have different processes. Other people um, who are terrific novelists don't need to do that research. It's all in their heads, but uh, I don't have that good of an imagination. <laughs> okay. So when you, when you go and you're writing, and I want to go back to the fear, okay? So when you actually put words out, string them together, creating ideas. And you're afraid of how people will spend their time. What, what is the fear of? Is it letting people down? Is it what they'll think of you? Is it time that you really have a value of time and you don't want to waste others? Like what is, can you go underneath the surface of that thought just a little bit and, and help shape what you're afraid of? So one of my favorite writers is Richard Ford, uh, the novelist, always has been, wrote, wrote The Sports Writer, wrote Independence Day. Uh, Frank Bascom is his main character. He's, he's kind of his alter ego. And I remember listening to an interview with him after Independence Day had come out. And Independence Day is one of my favorite books in the world. Uh, and after that came out and he mentioned that not very long before that he had thought of just giving up writing and doing something else. And here was this Pulitzer prize winning novelist, you know, one of the, you know, quote unquote, important novelists of the last quarter of the 20th century. And he was just going to like walk away from it and, and, and sell real estate or, or something or pursue another interest. And, uh, it was baffling to me and it was baffling to the interviewer. She couldn't, she couldn't understand it. And he said, look, I write to be read and I wasn't really being read. And so I think that's part of it. If, if you write, if you spend the time you want, you're doing it for a purpose. Uh, you want ultimately people to read it. You want people to think well of it and, Really, you want people to sort of learn something about it, or at least I do. I mean, I've been a sports writer for gone on 20 years. I've been a reporter for about 25 years. And I don't think I would do what I do. I don't think I would write about sports if it didn't help me 
sort of order the world, understand life a little better, understand myself, gain some insight. And hopefully, hopefully, here's the big hope, that the people that read my stuff, that it helps them gain some insight and help them get through the day and have some revelations about, you know, what it means to be human in this world. That's honestly, I mean, without mentioning too implicitly uh, this book that just came out, Running to the Edge, that's what drew me to the story uh, as we went along, that the lessons that the main character in this book, Bob Larson, the lessons he was teaching, yeah, they they helped a lot of people run a lot faster, but I found them to be just at their very foundational level, something that could really help me in life and I hope would help a lot of other people in life. Finding Mastery is brought to you by Apollo Neuro. I am really excited about what Apollo Neuro is building. If you haven't had the chance yet, I highly recommend that you go check out the conversation I had with our co-founder, Dr. David Rabin, on the podcast. It is well worth a listen. Unlike traditional wearables that simply track your biometrics, Apollo is doing it totally differently. Apollo Neuro is designed to actively improve your health by enhancing sleep, relaxation, energy, and focus. So how's it work? Developed by neuroscientists and physicians, Apollo delivers these soothing little vibrations. They call them Apollo vibes that are like music your body can feel. More rapid vibrations help to improve your energy and focus, while the slower vibrations help to promote rest and digest in your body. And the best part for me, they're grounded in good science. Apollo has been tested by thousands of users in clinical and real-world trials. I would love for you to give it a go. It's making a meaningful difference in my life. And because you're listening to this podcast, you can receive an exclusive 15% off an Apollo wearable. Just head to apolloneuro.com slash findingmastery and use the code findingmastery at checkout. This is an exclusive offer. It's only for us here at Finding Mastery. So be sure to use the code at checkout. Again, that's Apollo, A-P-O-L-L-O, Apollo, Neuro, N-E-U-R-O, apolloneuro.com slash findingmastery, or use the code findingmastery at checkout for 15% off your purchase. Finding Mastery is brought to you by Cured. If there's one big rock to get into the container when it comes to dialing in your wellness, one thing that stands out among the rest is sleep. Whether it be improved physical health, mental health, performance, creativity, quality sleep is the gift that keeps on giving. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with the science that supports that. And if you're struggling with sleep or you just want to dial it in a bit further, Cured's Zen formula just might be a great solution for you. Zen is a nootropic that is formulated by Cure's very own in-house clinical herbalist, and it contains a blend of reishi mushroom, ashwagandha, chamomile, passionflower, and broad-spectrum CBD. That is a powerhouse combination. Zen could be a great little addition to your bedtime routine. They recommend taking it about 45 minutes before hopping into bed to let the reishi and ashwagandha and chamomile and the CBD do their thing. So right now, because you're listening to this podcast, Cured is hooking you up with a great offer. 
You can try Zen for 20% off when you visit curednutrition.com slash findingmastery and you use the code findingmastery at checkout. That's cured, C-U-R-E-D, cured, nutrition.com slash findingmastery and enter the code findingmastery at checkout to save 20%. Before we dive into the, the insights from the book, I want to get insights from the man who wrote the book and what you just said is rich. It's like, I am using writing in sport to help organize the world, to understand myself and others better. And I think that's really deep. And so I also hear something that is very practical. And the practical piece is, okay, I want to, I want to be read. So it's very different to me. And there's not a right or wrong, but it's very different than this thought, which is, I'm looking to create a masterpiece. I don't care if anyone sees it. I'll know. I'll know if it's beautiful, if it's true, if it's authentic, if it hit the right notes and the dissonance was just pure. That's not what you're saying. You're saying practically, I want to create something that is a good use of other people's time. Do I have that right? Definitely. You want to be relevant or I want to be relevant. Okay. Uh, Pull on that thread. What is that? If you unpack relevance to you, how do you organize that? Well, well, in my day job, deputy sports editor of the New York Times, I'm constantly telling reporters and telling myself, we need to write the best story about the most important thing. And there's a lot of different ways to define the most important thing, but you know it when it's in front of you. Um, when this whole stuff was going on, last summer with Urban Meyer at Ohio State and whether he had handled the situation with his assistant coach who was involved, who was allegedly involved in this domestic dispute. That was a really important story in America and we needed to get into it and we needed to figure out the best story about that and we needed to write it. So in, in that sense, it's about being relevant in that way. There's other ways, there's other stories that are important and relevant too. I, I was sitting with a reporter in, in December and she, she had written a story recently for me about a woman who was winning, Courtney DeWalter, who runs these races that are more than 200 miles, ultra, ultra marathons, and she wins them. And so she's beating men. And women generally do not beat men in athletic competitions. Uh, it, it's, you know, there are genetic reasons for this. Uh, that's not a value judgment or anything like that. It's just, you know, it's the truth. So, but she is, she is beating them. And so I was, you know, fascinated with the idea and people have always thought about, well, as the distance goes longer, strength and physical capability abilities, the distance between men and women sort of narrows. Uh, so maybe since she was going to on these 240 mile races and winning them, maybe that was far enough where it didn't matter if you were a man or a woman, it just mattered whether you were the biggest masochist. Uh, so, (laughs) and then she starts telling me about this woman she knows who's, uh, stage four lung cancer, has five children who are these crazy adventurous children. She's a crazy adventurous woman. She, um, you know, is an ultra marathoner and a triathlete. And 
in her time left, which she's on a drug, which generally works for about a year and a half. And then, you know, the, the numbers, the history so far says that she will go into something of a fate. She's a very serious, very, you know, virulent version of cancer. And she was doing one last adventure with each of her five children. This is, I read this story. This is, this is outrageous. And she was going and, and, and her next adventure with her 20 year old daughter was, she was going to climb Aconcagua, the roof of the Americas, the highest mountain outside of Asia. And I said, Rebecca, why are you not pitching me this story? This is the most unbelievable thing I've ever heard. And a week later, she was on a plane to Argentina to go climb Aconcagua with this woman. And, you know, that's a real that's that's a pretty relevant story uh, in my book. Yeah. What makes it relevant? What are the, the levers that make something relevant for you? Well, you know, that hits sort of that ticks off all the but that's about life and death. Um, that's sort of about everything right there. You know, life and death and what's the legacy you're going to leave with the people who are the most important to you. And those are, those are the things that have the most meaning to me. And, you know, when I see that uh, playing out either, you know, not necessarily on the field of competition because a Super Bowl usually is not life and death. Um, but, there's all kinds of other issues that are coming up on the journey to the Super Bowl or to the World Cup that can can feel like life and death to the people who are involved on the journey. And when we can convey that and when we can make people understand the sort of inner workings of uh, the people that they're watching on television or and looking up to and understanding their fragilities and insecurities uh that's that's where that that's where i want to be mm. what are some of those for you some of those fragilities and insecurities and because i i hear two things for you one is like legacy like you want to build that for the people that matter most to you you want to honor people's time and you know what are the parts that are difficult for you this actually the, you know, the writing stuff, the, the, the waking up early in the morning and sitting at my computer and working with my notes and in, in, when it's really quiet, I'm good with that. I can, I, I can, I can do that. Uh, that's when I feel like most under control. When the book is birthed to the world and I got to sort of put myself out there and talk about myself and promote myself. I mean, you could, I, I became a reporter for a reason and probably for a couple of different reasons, but one of those reasons was probably because I was comfortable of being a gray byline in a newspaper. Uh, it was, it was not, you know, I didn't, I didn't gravitate towards having a microphone and being on TV. I was, I was comfortable with being, being sort of invisible. So this part, um, when you got to promote yourself, especially in 2019, when that's when there's social media and you're supposed to have a, a presence on Twitter and on Instagram, uh, and this is the whole reason why I'm not a columnist. I, I I'd say I I don't wake up in the morning and why I had, well, I'm really bad at Twitter. Uh, I'm not that pithy. 
I, I don't wake up in the morning and want to tell everybody what I had for breakfast. I want to wake up in the morning and like go for a nice quiet run for an hour, an hour and a half and be inside my head and not wear headphones and hear my feet scratching along the cinder around the reservoir in Central Park. And that's when sort of I feel the most sort of order in my life. Mm. So knowing that you are going to talk about yourself here for this conversation, how do you manage your relationship with yourself or your relationship with this challenge right now? If this is one of the harder things that you do, how did you prepare? How did you order it today? I think I've been thinking for a while since I finished writing the book about how I would talk about it because it's important. You're not done when you finish writing the book. Unless you're Don DeLillo, who does no publicity and writes his books and puts them out there and then goes and backs and, and is a hermit. Uh, he's a you know, postmodern novelist, and when you're a postmodern novelist, you're allowed to behave that way. But, Him and uh, J.D. Salinger. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, th- but that's, not, that's not the deal at this point when you're, when you're writing sports journalism books. And so I've been thinking about how I want to talk about this. And I will say that this, this has been sort of easy because this is easier because this is a book about one of the things I love the most, which is running. I mean, you ever play that game uh, at a dinner party where everybody gets five, five words to describe themselves? Never. No. What, what is this? No. So... You know, what would you say? Okay, you have five words to describe yourself. What are they? Oh, God. Are we doing this now? You don't have to. <laughs> yeah, it's hard, but I know what my words are because I've gone through them. And one of those words has, has been marathoner. Wait, hold on. I, I love what you just did. This is actually really important. I want to come back to your words. But when I just gave you a way to take care of me, you did. So I'm led to believe that you have a high compassion, high EQ, high social EQ, that you really care about people and you know how to take care of them because they've trusted you for a long time. And in return, somehow uh, the way that they trust you is because you take care of them. So just now you took care of me. You don't have Good. to. Oh, yeah. It was, <laughs> it was really eloquent. Good. So there's another response, which is like, yeah, Mike, come on now. And you could have you done something totally different. And I'd love to answer the question, you know, with you, but I'm more fascinated about your approach, which you just did something that I think is probably so authentic and so easy to you that people trust you. Well, so much of being a journalist, a certain kind of journalist, is getting people to tell you things that they're not supposed to tell you. Oh, keep going. And the only way, I mean, whether it's giving you, you know, confidential information or whether it's telling you things that make them really sad or that they're really scared of in, in when, they, when they're alone and making, and, and that's all about establishing a comfort level. And so that's, um, maybe that's one of the reasons I became a journalist because it was something where I felt like Okay, if people feel comfortable talking to me, then I'll be able to get something out of them. I, I it was it was interesting. You recently had Abby Wambach on your show, yeah, and I was 
you know, doing what I do, which is flipping through my phone as I'm getting ready to get on my bike to work. And because I listen to a lot of podcasts on while I'm riding and I said, you know, who's Mike going to have on this week? And I see Abby Wambach and I thought, oh, wow, he's got Abby on. That's, you know, I've known Abby for a while and she wasn't really much of an interview all those years. Uh, she kind of sounded like she was always in a Gatorade commercial. I mean, just go back and look at the clips. Like, there's not a great Abby Wambach story during her playing days. And I started playing that interview, and I felt like such a failure listening to it because it was amazing. And there was this whole Abby that, like, came through in a way that either she never allowed herself to do when she was an athlete or felt she couldn't come through when she felt like she was an athlete or her sponsors told her she told her not to come through when she was when she was performing but I, I, I really had like this sense of wow I had written about her and I just had sort of and interviewed her and I just sort of kind of failed because I had never gotten her to open up and it, it, it honestly it made me a little sad about sort of the state of sports journalism or I guess journalism in, but probably more sports journalism maybe celebrity when people are celebrities because there was so much in there that would have been so interesting to write about when she was the best soccer player in the world and while it's great that it's coming out now I feel bad that it couldn't come out when she had an even bigger platform. So your response to that leads me to believe that you take things personally. You take your craft personally. Like you, you've infused who you are with what you do to say that, oh man, I, I've, I've failed. It's not so much about the other person succeeded, but it's that the way that you do you and express you, whether it's an interview with Abby or anybody, that you take it personally. And at the same time, your ability to really care about what could be for somebody. And I, I, I snap right into this with you, meaning like one of my great fears is like, I'm going to waste your time, you know, that I'm not going to be able to really understand your genius and then deconstruct it. Genius with the lower key. Let's go back. I'm not very comfortable with the word genius. I'm sorry. I'm not going to let you get away with that. Well, okay. Well, then how have you created such a, I don't know, like a a dent in journalism and sport? There's like the the three, four, five guys that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. And we had Alyssa Roenick in um, at one point, ESPN writer, and she's, she has a great way at getting right into the center of the action sport athlete and what makes them really unique. But your writing picks up on things that, um, no, I know you're not doing a bunch of it now other than your book, but it, it picks up on things that I, I normally don't think about. I think it's because I, I always want the story to be about something else. Oh, I'm always, I'm always yeah. sort of, what's this story really about? You know, I'm, sometimes we call it the third beat it's it's that it's not actually about the thing you're writing about a recent story i wrote about uh sarah sellers who's marathoner she came in second in the boston marathon in 2018 which was the 37 degree rainstorm crazy day 
Oh, and by the way, she's also like a full-time nurse anesthetist in Arizona. So she's in the operating room for 30 hours a week and she's an elite marathoner. And she was basically an amateur, when, she's completely an amateur when she came in second in Boston on that crazy day. Since then has decided to really become a professional, but has not given up her other job because she loves it and because she thinks it makes her faster because she feels like if she was a full-time runner that she would be, as she says, too much of a stress case. She would be obsessing about her whole identity would be wrapped up in whether she had a good workout or not. And this way she goes to the hospital Four victims from an auto accident come in. Their wives are in danger. She's in the OR. That's a pretty good lesson in perspective. It, and it yeah. was. And I loved writing that story because it was about, first of all, it was about this crazy balancing act where she's training as an elite marathoner and holding down a full-time job, uh, 30 hours a week of being a nurse anesthetist. That's pretty full-time. Um and so it's a crazy balancing act and also just the mental balancing act of what makes you respond to be at your best. So, yeah, it was about running, but it was about all these other things. And so I think that's almost always what I'm trying to write about, especially now where I'm writing a little less on the sort of daily journalism side, sort of writing when the spirit moves me, um, but also you know but but throughout my throughout my career even when i was writing you know churning out two three four stories a week i was always trying to make them as 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 big and as broad and as meaningful as possible finding mastery is brought to you by ag1 if you've been listening to the podcast for a while you know what a big supporter i am of ag1 and it's almost been for a decade now so I love what they're doing. I, it's something I drink just about every day. And part of their marketing slogan is that it's a nutritional insurance program. And like, I just, I love that. That's the way it feels for me. And that's because each serving of AG1 delivers a dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and so much more. It is a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. I like to take it first thing in the morning which is also recommended for optimal nutrient absorption. And so what I do is I just fill up my shaker, add some cold water, a scoop of AG1, and a little squeeze of lemon. I shake it up, and I'm ready to go. Or if I'm in a rush or you know I'm, I'm ripping and running on the road, I just grab an AG1 travel pack to take with me. I feel great after drinking it, not only because of the nutritional insurance idea, but there's just a there's a sustenance that happens when I drink it. And I love recommending it to friends and family because I know AG1 is formulated with science-informed rigor and the highest quality in mind. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily. And that's why I've loved partnering with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, I want to encourage you to give AG1 a try and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and also get five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash findingmastery. Again, that's drinkag1.com slash findingmastery. Finding Mastery is brought to you by AquaTrue. 
we all know how important hydration is to performance and recovery and well-being, but it's not just about how much you drink. The quality of your water plays a big role. And if you're like me and you don't fully trust tap water, and I think for good reason, research by the Environmental Working Group has shown that three out of four homes in the U.S. have harmful contaminants in tap water. That's why I'm really excited to introduce AquaTrue. Their purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters. It's incredible. I can literally taste the difference in my water. Plus, the filters are affordable and long-lasting. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water. That adds up to less than three cents per bottle. It feels great to know that all at once, I'm saving money, getting the highest quality water for the Fonny Mastery team, and helping make a positive impact on the environment by eliminating single-use plastics all the way around. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, and it even makes a great gift. And right now, because you're a Fonny Mastery listener, you receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. So just go to AquaTrue.com. You spell it A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter the code FINDINGMASTERY at checkout. Again, that's AquaTrue.com. Enter the Finding Mastery code at checkout to receive 20% off any purifier that you buy there. Okay, so you're driven by a handful of desires, wants, which is to make it meaningful, to create a story or a third beat, as you called it, like the thing that the story inside the story you want to make sure that you're not going to let people down by those that are reading it. Is there anything else and legacy? Those are kind of the four main drivers right now. Is there anything else that is deep, you know, as part of the primary drivers for you? Well, I guess this sort of ties into legacy a little bit because I, I, I want to make sure we're like have the right definition of legacy because cool. I feel like, I feel like the great lesson of, middle age is um you know no one gets out of here alive for the most part it's a pretty safe bet that no one's going to be reading what we wrote in 100 years or maybe even 50 years and what really matters most is the impact you can have on the lives of the people that you're closest to so i feel like that's really you know, you sort of get to this point in your career where you're, you know, you're hyper competitive and and trying to get to, you know, trying to achieve as much as you can achieve, and then at some point, I mean, maybe call it a midlife crisis or not, but you, you inevitably say like, oh, oh, wait a minute, like, what's this all going to add up to? Oh, can and, you pause there? Sure. What what? How do you answer that? What is it? What are we doing here? Well, I can tell you that I had a really interesting week last um, in the fall. Uh, my most beloved teacher in the world, my fourth grade teacher, Alan Falber, died, and um, I, he had me. He had all my brothers and me um, for fourth grade uh, in a period in the 1970s when he was really young. Like my my oldest brother, David, who's four years older than me was in his first full year of teaching. So Alan was you know, 21 years old, right out of college. 
and this was his job. And he stayed at the school we went to for another 37 years. So he, his was actually the second funeral I had gone to. Um, in, in the, this is what makes this. I should have started the story with the other funeral, which was Dave Anderson, who is the sort of legendary Pulitzer Prize winning sports columnist at the Times, who my dad introduced me to when I was eight years old and really sort of taught me how to read by showing me how to read the sports section. And I got to know Dave a little bit. As I got older, I would run into him. Uh, I didn't overlap with him at the Times, but I would see him at the occasional sporting event and shook his hand. And he died. He had a wonderful life. He was, I think, 89 years old, a great run. Um, and I went to, his, it went to his funeral, and it was some lovely eulogies about um, – you know, the great stories he did and the great people he met and Muhammad Ali and all kinds of, you know, the famous people he came into contact with. And then it was probably a week or two later that I went to Alan Falber's funeral and here he had been this elementary school teacher in my town for 38 years. Part of this is a function of someone who dies when he's in his, you know, mid-60s and someone who dies when they're in 89, when they're 89. So um, you can imagine the attendance figures alone are a little different. Uh, but there were probably six or 700 people at my fourth grade teacher's funeral. And there were stories about the kid in his class whose mother died of cancer that year, and she didn't want to go to school. And so Alan, on his way to school every day for the rest of the year, picked her up and drove her to school and walked her in. And, um, you know, then I ran into a guy who was in my brother's class and he said, you know, when I was in fourth grade, I broke my leg and I had a cast from my hip to my ankle. And our class was on the third floor of the school. And every morning, Alan would come down to the first floor and put me on and p literally pick me up and carry me up the stairs into my class. And, you know, there's just like story after story about this guy who, you know, he did some tutoring as well. So the impact that he had, the legacy he had, that'll teach you something and that'll make you question about how you're spending your time. Um, and are you more interested in deep across few or more shallow across many, but still creating impact? So deep impact across few or shallow across many? I guess I kind of want it all, don't I? <laughs> I? I do too. And the first time yeah. I was asked that question, it, I don't think it, it's, I don't think it's a binary choice. I mean, I think you I, can I struggle with it. Yeah, I mean, I think you can. I, I mean, I, I, I hopefully I write for lots of people. I hope hopefully lots of people, you know, read what I write and they can learn something from it. Um, but hopefully the people that I get to know uh, and that I'm close with, I mean, my closest friends in the world are, you know, a few guys I went to elementary school with and a couple of guys who are my roommates from college. I mean, I've, I've, I've pretty deep relationships or, or on that, that's if you see it as the glass being half full. The other way you could see it as one, I'm one of the least evolved people, you know, <laughs> that I'm I'm still hanging out with people from elementary, from, from school, elementary school, right? Yeah. But uh, <laughs> you know, that's that, that's that's what I uh, that's my life. 
So um, I, I don't think it's necessarily a binary choice there. Where do you find the most stimulating environments? What have been some of the most stimulating over your 20 plus years as a, as a writer? Like where are the places you've gone that you're like, man, I never thought. And then I learned. Are you talking about work environments? Like yeah. The, oh yeah. Yeah. Sorry. More, more articulate. Yes. It's always when you're on a big breaking news story and it's just hyper competitive and you know you're just it's the heat of competition from a journalism perspective it's just the heat of competition and i've had that at you know certainly each of the places where i've been um for you know the significant portions of my career the first was at the star ledger in new jersey uh, when you know you're, we were going up against you know you're going up when local journalism was sort of different than it was now and you were it was just hyper competitive and uh, you were going up against much bigger publications with much bigger staffs and you know trying to be the scrappy underdog and and beat them uh, so it was on some of those stories I mean when Jim McGreevy was governor of New Jersey and it was I think people could agree reasonably corrupt uh, and it was sort of getting at those stories um, and I was a sports writer but I was doing a lot of stuff about the sports business and the government government controlled a lot of the sports in the state so competing with people on those or then at, you know at the at the journal competing with some with uh, the times on thief on the FIFA story uh, not just competing with the times when I was the Wall Street Journal but you're competing with the Guardian and everybody and I mean it was it's hard you're competing with Build in Germany and I mean everybody but you're trying to but find you your like, way you and like you, those environments the most oh yeah it's great that's the the most electric I mean in terms in terms of just just pure adrenaline yeah and the pure sort of heroin rush of journalism I don't know. I've never done heroin, but I would imagine <laughs> that's the sort of, you know, that's the cliche that, you know, the, the thing that people get really hooked, can get really hooked on. When, that. can you remember a time or a story when you were over your skis, when you were like, how am I going to do this? Like I'm way over my head on this one. Well, I can, I can remember getting just absolutely killed on a story. Uh, which was the Russian doping oh, yeah. scandal. And, okay. um, yeah, walk us through You know, this, we yeah. all knew... Uh, um, one thing I, was, I, I had gotten pretty good at was predicting the medal count in the Olympics at pretty good accuracy uh, because there's, there's a, we figured out a sort of statistical way to do it and if, what countries were going to win which medals and you add it up and then came 2014 and Russia goes from winning, you know, like I think 10 medals in 2010 to like 33. And we all knew I mean, every good Olympics writer knew like, well, they're cheating. Okay. Like there's only one explanation. Like you can't, you cannot create an Olympics team in four years, in four years, you can't go from being terrible to being 
great. Like these athletes in these sports, they take years to develop. It just doesn't happen. Okay. I think, and the home, the home ice advantage, let's call it or home snow advantage. That's usually only good for like a 10 to 15% uptake, uptick in your metal count. So it was like very clear they cheated. And there was a number of journalists who were trying to figure out how they cheated, what they did. And, um, you know, the time I woke up one morning and there, or it was one afternoon when the times pushed the button and, you know, they had gotten the source. They had gotten to the source who told them everything about how, uh, about how he had, you know, how they constructed the lab and cheated and swapped out the urine and you know, all the stuff we now know to be true. And, uh, I don't know if you'd call that being out over my skis or outgunned, but we just call it getting your ass kicked. <laughs> okay. It was, so was the Icarus movie, was, did, was that, that pretty guy, accurate? That's yeah, the guy. That was the guy. Yeah. And there's, see, and there's scenes in that movie where he's on the phone with my competitor at the Times. That's it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and that was, that, was, that was as painful as it gets. Okay. So now let's snap this from writing to running what are you running toward or what are you running away from well i, I i'm running away from death <laughs> basically and it, it's a little game i think i play um which is i still think i can get faster and if i'm getting faster then doesn't that mean i'm not really getting older it doesn't, of course. It does it's ridiculous. Not. It <laughs> <Yes>. doesn't. <laughs> but it'll get you through the day or it'll get you through the week or it'll keep you out on the roads looking at your watch and feeling really good about that tempo run you just pulled off. And uh, that's sort of that's that's what I would say I'm sort of running a, away from a bit. I also you know, have a wife and three daughters and uh you know it's it's it, it can get a little intense in a new york city apartment so maybe i'm running a little bit away from uh, away from that emotional oh intensity yeah. but um i used to i used to love like this is going back to high school and uh first i had a proclivity for stitching ideas together even way back when and so like one of my buddies we'd be let's say we're talking about like elephants or something and then one of the buddies would say just not innocently not kind of stitch it together like say um hey man how's your girlfriend and then, you know like this is sounding really insensitive but then like everybody would laugh you know like um but it was like oh look how his mind works yeah. you know like so I, I loved what you just did you caught yourself in there right right you know and that that is an i think an important question to figure out is like how does your mind work and that's not an easy question do you have a sense of how it, it, with the white canvas of that question how do you work how do your thoughts work how does your mind work things get stuck Ooh, in it yeah like, think like there's a story that there's some winston churchill quote about if there's something you could it's like if there's it's something you think about every day then it must be worth doing i'm totally butchering the quote but if you're thinking about it, it's basically, you know, if you're thinking about it every day, you better get after it. So and what gets stuck? So stories. So like I'll hear a story hmm. and um, I'll just 
sort of it won't I'll keep thinking about it I'll keep thinking about like what what it means and why is it why is it interesting to me uh that's what that that's honestly like sort of where this where this book came from was I heard this story about this coach and these hippie runners in the 1970s and how he, they came out and he used them as his lab rats and I knew Bob Larson for as as Meb Kaflesky's coach, but I didn't know his origin story, and I just kept thinking about it. And I would originally talked to the editor of my previous book about it, and they were so he was sort of like lukewarm about it. Um, but the story just sort of stuck in my head as being meaningful in some way, and um, I finally said like yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pursue this. It's, and often it's, if I keep thinking about it, uh, I mean, I do my best, I'll do a lot of my best writing when I'm running. And because I'm often thinking about things I want to write about, and words just seem to sort of, or ideas order themselves uh, when I'm in motion that way. And it's often when I'm thinking about the thing that's most important to me. And I was thinking about this story a lot in late 2016 um, when I really wanted to write it. and I wasn't sure whether I was going to pursue it. And then I just said, oh, yeah, I have to do this. I have to at least give it a shot and get it out. Is it like a relentless rumination or is it like you're able to see the concept or central concept or even themes or streams from many different angles? Like how do, how do you organize your thinking? I try and think really hard about uh, who is, who's the main character, who's the mule, who's gonna carry the story? Who's gonna carry the story and how quickly can we get to the guts of it? Do you think what's of, the best way to get to the guts of it? Is that what you think about most? whether you're looking at a story or thinking about your own book or story, like is, or do you think about other things more? And this is just squarely about your craft. And when I say other things, I'm thinking about running technique. I'm thinking about relationships. I'm thinking about the world as you know, we know it and the afterlife and like big stuff. Like what, I guess I'm asking a really big question, which is not only what is the nature of how you think, but what do you think about in relationship um, most of the time? When I'm running? No, just in general, just in, in life. In life. I heard, I heard that you say like, I work out stories, mule and, and hero. You didn't say hero. What'd you say? Mule and main character? Yeah. Like I heard that you're sorting that out when you're running. And, and I'm trying, I'm right now trying to figure out like how your mind works. And not very well, yeah, come on. <laughs> and you said, you know, you get stuck on things. And so when I let's, let's, let me help us be more precise with my question is that, is it like a hamster wheel or is it like a movie camera that can see the issue from multiple angles until you kind of sort it out or something totally different than that? It's obviously. not the hamster wheel. It's yeah. definitely trying to work through different possibilities, play things play things out differently, different scenarios. What if I say this? What will that person say? Will that work? What's the outcome that I want to get to? Why do I want to get there? How am I going to get there? 
Is it worth it to try? Is it is it worth it? What are the ramifications going to be? So sort of dealing with all kinds of possibilities like that. I would say that's 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 how I'm thinking about you know relationships. That's how I'm thinking about stories. That's how I'm thinking about uh, how I spend next weekend. And are you using images, or is it more like a grid? Not a grid. Not a grid. No, so I'm seeing people and hearing voices. You are. Yeah, I probably shouldn't say that, right? It doesn't <laughs> yeah. sound, that doesn't sound. That doesn't sound very good. Your, your mom's an analyst, but, right? Yeah, yeah. No, but I'm. I'm. I'm definitely. Yeah, I'm definitely talking to myself. Okay, and then is it so vibrant that you're actually seeing the characters? Sure. You are. Completely. Yeah. So, so it's not like words. You're seeing images. Yeah, completely. Yeah. And me the too. and the problem. Mm-hmm. The funny. The problem that I have and. I go back and forth. You know, my wife's probably main complaint about me is that it. I'll go through my head with all this stuff, but I won't be speaking to her about what I'm seeing. And then I'll sort of reach a conclusion or I'll say something and I'll expect that she will have been with me the whole time in my head. And of course I feel that way. And no, it takes her by surprise. I'm less good at communicating the thoughts as they're going through my head as I'm figuring it out. That's introversion. Yeah. That's exactly like you think and mull things over and, and muse internally. And that's where you gather great energy and clarity. And extroverts do the exact opposite. They're, how you know an extrovert's thinking is when they're talking. Right. Yeah. And it drives introverts crazy. Like, well, won't this person shut up? Like they keep changing their mind midstream and introverts are like, you know, and extroverts are like, man, I can't, I can't, I can't figure out what this person thinks or feels like they keep it all in. And then at the last minute they say something like it's a declarative statement, but I have no idea where they're coming from. Right. And I think, it, and that's what writing is. It's going through things over and over in your head and then, you know, printing it out on paper and crossing everything out and re- rewriting it. You know, you, you went through it one way. Now nah, that doesn't work. I got to do it through I got to go through a different way. I got to get there, get there another route. And when you make a, no, I don't want to say a mistake. When you have something that doesn't match what you're trying to say or feel or convey, what do you do internally with your thoughts? Do you say, are, are you really critical? Are you more accepting? Like, what is that your relationship with mm, the non-beautiful articulation? I'm, I think I can do, but yeah, I'll just give it another shot. So it's, it's more, a, failure's it's, okay. It's more neutral. You're, you're neutral. Yeah. I'm, to, I mean, I'm totally fine with not getting there. I'm totally, it just, you know, all the, aren't, like the cliches are true that fail, fail, fail again, fail better. Like that's true. You'll, you just keep, keep at it. And You'll probably get there, or you'll get you'll you'll at least be getting better. I mean, that's the that that to me is also sort of I think one of the things that really draws me towards running is that yeah, there's like numbers in my head of you know oh that'd be great to like get my marathon time below three ten, but what it's really all about is just being a little bit better tomorrow than you were yesterday. And believing that you can do that. And how committed are you to that dropping time? I mean, is your, 
Are you taking it into nutrition? Are you taking it into recovery and sleep? Are you taking it into figuring out how to plan your day, you know, with work and relationships? Or well, I'm it- real serious about, I mean, the training. I mean, I, tra- I, I do something every day, whether it's run or swim or yoga. Um, so, it, so this I, is important to you. Oh, this is really important to me. Yeah. I don't remember. I don't, I honestly do not remember myself before I was a runner. I don't know. I, I can't remember back to when I wasn't either running every day or I wish I could run every day. I can't anymore. Cause it hurt. It would hurt. It would, it would hurt too much. So I have to do some other things, but you know, whether I'm running or swimming, I was just, Oh yeah, I'm real serious. But that's the thing that like, that, that that's going to be in there somehow. And, and when your body breaks down with what, what happens for you? Well, I've, I haven't knock on wood. I haven't had a real serious injury. Although a few years ago I did something weird with my knee. Mm-hmm. Um, but when my body breaks down, I mean, there's, I do get really tired sometimes. Uh, and I just have to sleep for a while mm-hmm. because you know, that's the thing. I mean, Look, I live in Manhattan. We don't, we don't stop. It's 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 a problem, you know. Uh, it's a reason. It's a reason why I think cardio. The studies show that like cardiovascularly, we're healthier because we walk a lot, but our life expectancy is shorter. <laughs> because you're yelling a lot. Well, because it's yeah, it's just kind of stressful. <laughs> it's so intense. My, yeah, it's my, pretty intense. It's really intense. Like yeah. I love the city. I think it's fantastic, and I didn't love it young. I loved it after my wife introduced it to me and she's, you know, she was, she feels as though she's a New Yorker. Oddly enough, we went on a trip. I think we're doing a international trip and we had some, I can't remember what it was, but we, we landed in JFK and we just got into the airport and walked around and just the vibe of the airport. She's like, I knew, I I feel like I belong in this city. I was like, get out of here. You cannot tell that. She goes, Mike, I swear. And so ever since then, like it is flat out her favorite city in the world. And so I've come to enjoy it and like a week. But then after that, I'm like, Oh my God, the garbage trucks and the, you know, I, I, you know, and I got family back there that love it and they're living right. They're on the 84th floor. They look down the whole city. You know, that's all, it's a different way of living um, than the common folk, I should say. So I get like that beautiful, easy life in New York and also what's available for most people and it's loud, it's intense, it's honest, it's hardworking. Like there's some attributes I love about it. But what are the things you love about New York? I guess I just love the energy. Intensity. Um, do, do you describe it intense? It's just, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It, it's intense. Uh, you know, but what I love in, about it is but what you're I, intense. But what I love about it is what I hate about it also. And yeah, you know, I need a break from that intensity. Yeah, like you're yeah. really intense. But you would go crazy maybe. In Bali, I would definitely go crazy in Bali. Yeah, right. There are places, I don't know that I'd go crazy, you know, in in Marin or Seattle. I think I could do that, <laughs> or Vancouver. Or, but um, but Bali would Bali might be a struggle for too, me. Too far. Okay. But it's uh, but you know, it's 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 new, it's home. It's you know, the multiculturalism, uh, the acceptance that people have um for difference for differences uh those are all things that and, and the energy and i don't like driving very much so i don't have to do that very often so that's kind of great um it's, it's it's got its advantages 
into the book now, like if we, if we kind of move into the book, your book, what are you most excited for people to read? And what are you most excited that they take away and use in their life? I think what I'm most excited for them to take away, I'll start with the second question first, which is that Bob Larson, who's the main character, I mentioned before, he had these sort of basic foundational principles. There, There were three of them, really, when you get down to it. One was become comfortable with being uncomfortable. That the title of the book is Running to the Edge, and that was that that's it's a that's talking about running itself and how he wanted his runners to run he wanted them to run at their threshold and to learn how to do that for two miles and then do it for four miles and do it for five miles and to stay there because he was doing this at a time where if there were two schools of running one was long slow distance lydiard who was the the kiwi the new zealander who sort of created jogging so to speak um train, don't strain was his mantra. And then there was the interval folks who were, you know, do quarter, quarter mile after quarter mile or half mile after half mile, really intense, you know, minute break, another one really intense. And Bob comes along and he's like, and he says, you know, the, the long runs shouldn't be slow and the intervals shouldn't be short because you got to get comfortable with making your body uncomfortable and learning how to deal with it. And it's okay. And when you're exhausted and you feel like you can't go any faster, yeah, try and go like one click faster and do that for a hundred yards or 300 yards or a mile and see what that feels like. And so that's, a you know, we talk about ideas that can be related to the rest of your life. That's one of them. The other one is, we train as a group. Um, it's an individual sport, but we're a team. And we run as individuals, but we run as one because the group is more powerful than the individual. And um, that's something that like you have to get used to in life. You have to learn how to rely on people. When yeah. I run, which I don't run, I'm not a good runner, but I like running by myself more than I like running with someone else because of tempo and time and like skill levels. And so how do you, how do you sort that? You're probably running with people that are, I'm usually running by myself, honestly. I wish I could, I wish I had, and sometimes I run with groups or run with, I'm nice thing about running is you're running with one buddy, then you're a running group. Mm -hmm. So, um, I'm, you know, I'm running by myself just because I have a busy life and I got to fit it in and go when I can go. Uh, but, when you're training for something and you're competing for something, you know, you're, you're part of that group. You don't want to fall back. It's the, if you're having a bad day, you're going to work really hard to keep up with the team. And then the next day you're going to be having a good day and the other guy's going to be struggling and he's going to work hard to, to, to keep up with you. And you know, you lift each other. Um, it's like the Peloton in, in cycling. It goes fast. You go faster when you're in that Peloton than you do when you're fighting on your own. It's for sure. Yeah. One of the great, so I did an ultra. I think I shared it with you. I did a stand-up paddle from Catalina Island to Redondo Beach. About 22 or 25 people have done it. And it's really, it's hard. I mean, yeah. it's really, but the thing that helped, it was a 
It's about eight and a half hours it took me. It's supposed to take six and a half, but I ran into trouble out there. And the thing that I've found most valuable from the, the group, so to speak, we run together, to your point, is that showing up. So that we're all, every morning we meet at, you know, seven in the morning and just showing up is like, You're damn it, they're there. You know, I, I, they, they know I'm, I'm pulling the shoot on this thing if I don't show up. And it's like that accountability was great on days that I just didn't want to get out of bed. It means everything. Doesn't it? Isn't it, it means great? Everything. That little tribal part, thing. If someone's yeah. waiting for you, you're going to be there. That's great. And then the third part of it is, uh, is where you're born and how you're born is not your destiny. And this was really important in the 2000s because at that point, the world had become convinced that there was something different about the Kenyans and the Ethiopians. They were born in the Rift Valley. They evolved a certain way. Their muscle people, people were doing science experiments, trying to explain like, you know, their Achilles tendons were longer. They evolved this way. And Bob was like, no, they're running at altitude and they're working harder. And we're not running 150 miles a week anymore. And they are. We've convinced ourselves that there are shortcuts and that you can compete at the highest level running 90 miles a week and not pushing yourself. And no, we're going to do what my guys did in the 70s, these Hummel toads. We're going to get back to that. And he forms this Mammoth Lakes track club and uh, they live up at altitude. And in 2004... You know, 2000, we qualify one man for the marathon in the Olympics. In 2004, there's six marathon medals given out at the Olympics, three women, three men. This little track club in Mammoth Lakes, they get two of them. It, it wasn't rocket science. It was, and it wasn't biology. It was taking a group of people and doing what the Kenyans and Ethiopians were doing, which was running really hard as a team at altitude. And so those sort of three things of are are just I want I would love for people to say yeah I can do that I can push myself I can understand that I can be better next week than I am this week and I can rely on my friends my comrades my my running brothers and sisters or whoever or people I work with and you know the rising tide will raise all boats including mine. I love that last thought. It was um, maybe a title of the book that I'm going to, I'm working on. Like that thought is great. The rising right. tide. Rising the tide. rising tide. Yeah. And one of the things that I think. Because is, you are the tide. Yeah. That's, that's right. the thing. It's that's not, right. you know, it's not just the tide is not an accident. You actually make the tide. That's right. Uh, well, collectively we do. Yeah. We make the, you make, yeah, you yeah. and the people you're with, you that's make right. the tide. And so one of the things I think is really important that you translate well is that this isn't just, it's not like, let me get the four tactics that Futterman knows and uh, see if I can apply those and get into this high performance way of living. Bullshit on that. That's not how this works. This is a fundamental orientation toward the things that matter most to you, relentlessly committing to the substrate of that principle. And then maybe you'll understand the principle, which is writing a certain time or writing well, but it's a fundamental orientation. There is no, like, let me get the seven secrets. There aren't any, <laughs> right? And so it is understanding the substrate, fundamentally orientating your, your world towards that aim, 
And it, sometimes there's a great cost to doing this. High performance's way of living or execution is not for everybody. Although I think the message that we sell people is that it should be. But then what happens realistically to the average? <laughs> you know? one, of, one of our earliest conversations, you, when, and you, you and me, when I realized, I re okay, I really get what he's talking about. And I get why he's different from the other high performance psychologists that I've spoken with. Was there oh, was say this again? There was all this <laughs> no, but there was all this focus on there was all this focus on you know you know focusing the image I'm, I think of is like Tiger Woods looking at his putt and the way he used to sort of put his hands around the bill of his cap and people would say like oh he would just shut out the whole world and you know and what we what we later learned was like there was a lot of haunting stuff going on and. Tiger Woods' life and he a lot of stuff like he clearly was not particularly, for lack of a better term, actualized about. And um, when I was talking to you, you talked about, no, 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 I don't want the people I work with to shut any of that stuff out. Like, you're afraid of the tiger? Let's invite the tiger in and have the tiger sit on the couch and let's learn how to pet the tiger. And that was it. I think it was Felix in the suit and you, you, the terror, you know, the jumping, being in the suit and jumping out from what was 150,000 feet or something like that. Yeah, just under 130. Yeah, yeah. Uh, jumping out and ta you talking about it with him and how claustrophobic he felt in the suit and how you had to practice how he would feel in you know, the, the terror that he would feel getting into that suit and working through that. Uh, you know, Carrie Walsh Jennings and her, you know, her struggles with being a mom and being and playing volleyball and pursuing it. When she was playing volleyball, she felt like she was being a bad mom. And when she was a mom, she felt like she was cheating her teammates. And this was like racking her, you know, this was killing her. And it was the idea of, okay, you got to, you gotta, you gotta work through that. We gotta become comfortable with that. We don't, you can't like get your, there's no such thing as like a zone where you're not gonna think about this. Like those things make you uncomfortable. Okay, we're gonna have to deal with the discomfort and it's okay to be uncomfortable. It's okay to be, to, to understand these things. It feels like you remember our conversation. So I'm, I'm wondering. Yeah, be careful if, what you say to me. Yeah, I know, like is your, like that's word for word this, the, two of the three things that we spoke about, but this was years ago. Like, is your memory for things that are important, you know, like I'm writing them down, I'm thinking about them and you know, they wow. stay with me. Yeah. I feel like it was yesterday. I was sitting with Jurgen Klinsmann and he was, he had just been named the U S national team coach. And we were sitting and we were having coffee in orange County somewhere. And he was going through, members of his team and at this point Clint Dempsey was like the star and had scored more goals in the Premier League and you know, my tape recorder is running and Jurgen knows my tape recorder is running and he says you know Clint you scored you know Clint's not sitting there but he's like so he's like so you're Clint Dempsey you scored 17 goals for Fulham who cares go do it you go do it again go do it next year you haven't done shit push yourself Go do it year after year. Now go play in the Champions League and do it. And 
you know, it was the idea of sort of what he's getting across and it was what he was getting across through me because he knew I was going to write that and that everybody was going to read it or everybody on his team was eventually going to see it was this idea of like, don't be satisfied. There's always another place where you can go to push yourself. Like the, your biggest, really your biggest enemy is complacency. And that's what you're battling. That's what you're battling against. And that's okay to put yourself in a situation where you're going to be uncomfortable. And, you know, I felt this yesterday or was it? Yeah, yesterday or, you know, excuse me, Saturday, I was doing a tempo run and, um, you know, I know how fast I'm supposed to go on those. I know how, I know where I start to get uncomfortable and, you know, I saw the numbers coming up on my watch. And for me, it was pretty, it was, I was, you know, I was trying to go 10 miles progressively faster with each mile. And, you know, after a few miles of warming up and my first one was at like 725 and I knew I had to go, I was like, okay, now let's see if you can do it. And, you know, thinking, well, you started off pretty quick. Are you going to be able to keep going faster? And, you know, just telling yourself like, don't be afraid of the number. Like, who cares? Just try it. Keep it up. Don't be afraid of the numbers. Like, and you see it and just pushing yourself to be uncomfortable. And uh, it pretty much pulled it off. It was yeah, close. that's what I'm yeah. talking about. That inner from- civil war is a real deal. And I think if we don't embrace that civil war, that we miss the good stuff in life. And this idea that it's going to be eloquent and easy all the time. When it's easy, it's easy. Run with it. Like, it's fine. It's great. It means you're well prepared for the challenge or naive. (laughs) You don't understand the challenge and you got lucky. You you know, it's not sustainable that way. But that internal silver war that we have with ourselves, it really is a standing civil war. And without facing that down, I think we run into great troubles to express potential. And so that civil war, sometimes it's brutal. And I'm not suggesting it needs to be lethal but there is a conflict that we have with ourselves and it's a learned behavior That's i mean like right. nobody nobody wants to i mean nobody necessarily wants to make themselves uncomfortable you, know, you don't you have to sort of understand that there's a benefit to it and you have to push yourself to try and try and do it whether it's um i mean i you know, the job I have right now, I, I, I left what I thought was the only job I was ever going to want. As I, I was the, you know, the senior sports writer at the Wall Street Journal. It was the job I dreamed about having when I entered journalism. And then that crazy thing happened. Somebody actually gave me the job, you know, my dream job. And I had it. And then after like 10 years, I just started to feel stale at it. And I just felt like I felt like I could keep doing it. But. I was just, you know, I was I wasn't bringing the same energy to it and it was just sort of time to it was time to leave my dream job in a strange way. Um There's courage written all over that. Uh or stupidity, <laughs> one of the two. There you go again. Um, okay, so beautiful segue into how do you define or articulate or think about mastery? I think a I think it's something along the lines of trying to be trying to be your better self without fear and going at it without fear. Um, 
I think that's I think that's probably what it is. It's un, it's under because you know there's a lot of talk. You hear people use that phrase, "your best self." Mm-hmm. Like I don't know what my best self is. Like how do we ever know? There's no such thing as perfection. And one of the reasons I like doing yoga is because it's it's your practice. I just love it that this that it's that it's always just practice. Yeah, I think it's, it's a pursuit. Yeah, it's you just know, a pursuit. It's a pursuit. It's just, so like that's. But it's the central question: what What are you working towards? You can call it your best. You can call it um, master mastery or a masterpiece. Like, but what is your best? I'm looking for when I get glimpses of it. I'm just looking to string that together more often. Right, and to for me, longer. Yeah, right. for longer. That's what it is for me. Right, and I know. And there was, I mean, there was. I run these little races with uh they you know, like these these in new york the the media running challenge where it's you know the times has a running team and we run against some other media companies and you know there's these stupid little races with 150 people but it's fun you know we we compete as a team and you know i, I can sometimes win the age group medal and stuff like that and the first race of this season it came about a month after um, the Boston Marathon, and I had had a terrible Boston Marathon. It was, um, it was, it was just. I had spent, uh, you know, I spent months training for it, and you're training in 30 degree weather in New York City, and then you show up on the starting line of the Boston Marathon, and it's 70 degrees and humid, and I just, I, I just absolutely melt in that kind of weather and I melted that day and I was, I was just, I made it across the finish line, but I just sort of survived and I slogged and I, you know, I ran a half hour, more than a half hour slower than I had in New York in November. And it was about a month later, I was in this race, a three and a half mile race in New York and I was running and I was running next to a guy who I usually, or I beat all last year. And I was scared of feeling sick again. I was, I just, I was just running scared and I was like, well, just hang next to him and then beat him in the last 70 yards. And like, I'm not fast. Like, I know that's not how, like I do well when I push the pace early cause, cause I train hard and like endurance is my thing. And you know, he cleaned my clock in the last 50, 50 yards. And I was just annoyed because I had run it. I had run it scared. And two weeks later we had another race and I just told myself like, whatever you're going to do, you just run, like, don't be afraid of consequences here. Just run as hard as you can for as long as you can and, you know, intelligently. And I ran a great, and I, and he wasn't even in that race. So it wasn't, it was a different kind of thing, but I, you know, I was faster than I had been the time before. And, but it was, it was so satisfying just because I knew at the end of that three and a half miles, I had finished it and I hadn't been afraid. And I, I mean, runners are crazy about numbers. So I like, I remember my splits. It was like 625, 626, 625. And then I was running 626 in the last one. So it was like, I kept up what I had done. So. You know, I, that's an apt metaphor for life, which is run your race and get to the edge, do it with people. And then what was the third variable in the book? Where you're born and how you're born is not, it's your, not destiny. your destiny. You know, it is an apt metaphor for life to, to run your race. And, you know, it took me a while, Matt, to figure this out is that like no, nobody's paying my bills. Nobody is um, looking in the mirror for me and 
explaining who I am. That happens alone at night. That happens in my mind, you know, 18 hours awake a day. The paying the bills thing is like the artifact, you know, like I think it's really important that journey of authenticity to run my race and to run it the best way I can sort out. My wife reminds me all the time, this thought, which is, Hey Mike, we're just, it's about our son. You know, he's 11 years old and she'll say, you know, we're all just trying to figure it out. I just love that. I just love that concept. You know, it's so warm. Like we're just, it's such a great reminder, especially like that holds true with the best in the world, with those that are at the tip of the arrow of their profession. They're just trying to figure it out too. Right. I mean, you were talking to Julie Fowdy recently yeah. and Julie, I've known Julie for a long time. And, uh, didn't her spirit come through in the converse in the oh, podcast? Totally. Like, wasn't that oh, great? Totally. But also, but like her spirit, but her, her insecurity. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right. You know yeah. that the, the, that imposter syndrome yeah, right. now is the day where they're going to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, I know. Now there's going to figure it out. And I'm, I'm like, I'm like riding my bike through central park on my way to work. And I, like, I nearly, I nearly wrecked because I was like, Fowdy feels that too. How about that? If she you can know? feel it, if I she, can feel right. it. Yeah, That's I know. like, really? Because yeah. of all people, I mean. You know, she's a you, legend, you know. Yeah. Right. It's a legend, but also she doesn't give off that vibe of so having. She's so competitive. Right. But she's so just, honest. But she's also, but she also comes off as like incredibly confident. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. In, in. Did you have a chance to listen to Des Linden? That conversation? I didn't listen to that conversation, but I've. Talk to Des a lot. Yeah. I, if you get a chance, I think you really appreciate, like, she was so clear. It was it was great. She was great. Well, runners, we spend a lot of time in our own heads. Yeah. The, you know, we spend a lot clear. of time thinking about what we're doing. It's a long distance running is a very intentional act. Uh, at, the, as, and at, at the elite level, it's a terrible way to make a living. You know, it is in the... the the training is incredibly painful. It's incredibly time-consuming, and you only get two shots at it a year. If the marathon is your race, I mean, maybe you get a third one. Maybe you get a third one inside of like fifteen it, months or New, something. New York and Boston, but pretty much it's a spring summer. You know, you got yeah. a spring marathon and a fall marathon, and it, you know, if you miss one because of injury or if you have a, or if you wake up and you have a stomach ache, like it's not your day. And so it's, it's a brutal, brutal way to make a living. And there's something about that that makes these guys very, and, the, and these women very sort of ruminative. And I think also very empathetic. One thing that really separates running uh, elite runners from, I think, elite athletes in just about any other sport. I mean, I would, I would never in a million years talk to Roger Federer about, I, I played tennis in college. I would never talk to him about you know his struggles returning Rafael Nadal's serve and compare those to my struggles with how I could never return the first serve of you know this guy from Middlebury or this guy from Colgate or any of the other little schools. Because I the worlds with. don't really overlap. But in running, well, well, they 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 don't really overlap. But also, it's just like not in the ethos of the sport. I mean, Roger would laugh at me, or it's like it's like talking oh, with, got it. yeah, yeah. They would just like they don't 
they don't equate what what a regular person does with what they do whereas it's totally in the dna of the sport for des to discuss you know, training regimens strategies what boston was like that day what new york was like in 2012 because they all we all line up on the same starting line and uh, abdi abdi rahman said great thing to me in october because i said to him i was like abdi i don't want to compare my race to yours like he said he said what are you talking about man he said we all experience the same pain we just experience it at different times and it was just kind of cool on that note, that is a beautiful way to end this conversation because it's so true. It is so true about life. We're not escaping this thing, you know, scar-free. No one gets out of here alive. Mm. Okay, so where can we find you? Where, where can we f- pick up the book? Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's a beautiful artwork on it. And so, and, and the, the clarity that you write with is awesome. So, and Thank I, you very and, much. Yeah, and I want to say thank you for... Um, you're one of the few journalists, uh, is that the right phrase? Writers? I'm not sure exactly. Journalists is a good one. Yeah. That, <laughs> yeah, that have been able to decode what I've tried to say in an interview. And so I want to say thank you for that. Oh, and, well, thanks for being so generous. Yeah. No, with seriously. your time. Yeah. So you can get this book running to the edge, uh, wherever books are sold at your local bookstore on at, at all the big online retailers, Amazon, Powell's, BNN, um, it's out there. Uh, you can find me, uh, you can find stories I've written at nytimes.com, probably in the archives of wsj.com. I'm on Twitter at, at Matt Futterman. I'm not very good at it. I'm not on there that much, but I'm on there occasionally. Uh, I think I have an Instagram feed that I feed every, every couple days when I remember to, uh, <laughs> it's at, awful. Matt, at Matt Fut one and, uh, I'm on Facebook and, uh, if anyone, ever has questions, I'm, I'm very free with my email, matt.futterman at nytimes.com. It's awesome. You're a legend. So thank you for the time and the insight. Um, and thank you, like I said, again, for spending the deep thinking to be able to articulate um, the things I think about most. And so this is, this is great to have you on. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Son of a psychoanalyst. It's like going through my childhood all over again. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for diving into another episode of Finding Mastery with us. Our team loves creating this podcast and sharing these conversations with you. We really appreciate you being part of this community. And if you're enjoying the show, the easiest no-cost way to support is to hit the subscribe or follow button wherever you're listening. Also, if you haven't already, please consider dropping us a review on Apple or Spotify. We are incredibly grateful for the support and feedback. If you're looking for even more insights, we have a newsletter we send out every Wednesday. Punch over to findingmastery.com slash newsletter to sign up. This show wouldn't be possible without our sponsors, and we take our recommendations seriously. And the team is very thoughtful about making sure we love and endorse every product you hear on the show. If you want to check out any of our sponsor offers you heard about in this episode, you can find those deals at findingmastery.com slash sponsors. And remember... No one does it alone. The door here at Finding Mastery is always open to those looking to explore the edges and the reaches of their potential so that they can help others do the same. So join our community, share your favorite episode with a friend, and let us know how we can continue to show up for you.
Lastly, as a quick reminder, information in this podcast and from any material on the Finding Mastery website and social channels is for information purposes only. If you're looking for meaningful support, which we all need, one of the best things you can do is to talk to a licensed professional. So seek assistance from your healthcare providers. Again, a sincere thank you for listening. Until next episode, be well, think well, and keep exploring.